Welcome to Gateway's Podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from one of our pastors. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Good morning, Gateway. I am uh, excited to be here uh, starting, or really continuing, uh, the series that we started last week uh, called, as you see, What to Do When You Mess Up. Um, if you're here last week, Nick kind of kind of jumped us off, and I'm going to keep on going. Bart's going to share with us next week, and then I'll close out in a couple of weeks. Um, just as kind of a background, this series uh, came from a, a place of just discussion between Nick and I. Um, our offices are all in the kind of the same area. We have open doors. We every day we're talking to each other. And <coughs> excuse me, a few months ago, I guess it was. Um, Nick came into my office, and we something had just happened. I think it may have been just in the world news, or it may have been something in in the, in the student ministry. I can't remember what it was, but he just looked at me and said, "What's up with with teenagers not admitting they're, when they're wrong? What's up with teenagers, you know, just not not owning their mistakes or something like that?" And I kind of laughed at him. I said, well, your kids are really young right now. So they're like two and under. They're not talking a lot. But once Gus starts talking, you'll realize it starts a lot earlier than teenagers. It starts from the time they are able to express themselves. They will begin to shift blame away from themselves. They'll begin to, to justify their mess ups and their mistakes. Um, they'll begin to marginalize them like they're not that big of a deal. And I was like, Nick, it happens very early. Just wait. It's, it's happening. It's coming soon with Gus because he's about to start talking. He's about to explain to you every reason why whatever he did was okay that he did it, even though it was wrong. But we started talking about it and, and we really were, were <clears throat> thinking in our, like, just out loud of, and if there was something that we could get across to, to the next generation, to teenagers, to students, to, to elementary school kids um, about their Christian life, one of the big things would be having them like, just be humble and be willing to accept responsibility for the things that they do wrong instead of always fighting against it and, and pretending as if they're perfect angels. And as we were talking about that, um, we came to the realization that it's not just a teenager or kid issue. The reality is it's an adult issue as much as it is a teenager or kid issue, that, that we as parents have this problem of always thinking our kids are perfect angels and always justifying their decisions and their actions as if they were the ones in the wrong, not the ones who have wronged others. And not only that, we do it to, for ourselves as well. We like to justify our own mistakes and our own mess-ups and marginalize them as if they're not that big of a deal. Other people's mistakes and mess-ups are a big deal. Well, what I did, if you understand my side, it was really a small deal. And so we, we came to the conclusion that this is a much bigger issue than just teenagers or kids. This is, this is something that Scripture is, is very clear about, the steps that we need to take when we mess up, and it's something that, that we as Christians struggle to do well. And so that's where this, this, this um, series kind of came out of, and specifically thinking of the way that we treat other people. That when we mess up 
And the way that we treat other people by wronging them to their face or behind their back, or even if we don't wrong them in action, we wrong them in our minds by harboring some kind of resentment or bitterness towards them that changes the way we feel about them, that, that God has specific steps in Scripture to, that we should follow when we mess up in those ways, when we sin against other people. And we tend, as I mentioned before, we tend to justify it. We tend to, to marginalize it like it's not a big deal, or we tend to sweep it under the rug and, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and hide it like it's not a big deal. And that's not God's way for how to respond when we mess up. What God teaches us what to do when we mess up is what we're going through in these next four weeks that started last week. And we made it really simple and really easy, four R's. The first one is recognize responsibility. And and Nick talked about that last week as he shared and looked at and contrasted King Saul with King David and saw that when Saul was confronted with his sin, with his mess up, he justified it, he marginalized it, he hid it, he ignored it. When David was confronted with his sin, he finally recognized his responsibility in it and he confessed it. And so the first step is recognizing the responsibility that when conviction hits us, when we realize we are in the wrong in the way we've treated somebody or what we've done towards somebody, what we do in that moment is we choose to hide it, justify it, marginalize it, or we choose to admit it and recognize our responsibility in it. And God says, recognize the responsibility. And that was the first step last week. This morning, we're gonna be looking deeper into the next step, which is repent. So we move from just recognizing the responsibility and confessing, saying, yes, I have done wrong, to repenting from that. And we're gonna look at what that is today. And then the next two, Bart will be sharing with us next week about reconciling reconciliation. When you've wronged somebody, it is your Christian, Christian duty to go to them and reconcile and live at peace with them. And then the last step in a few weeks will be resting. Once it's all said and done, resting in the forgiveness and the grace and the love of God that he provides after you have messed up. So those are, the, those are the, the four steps, and every single one of these steps is really important. And we talked a lot and planned a lot about what does God's Word really say, because here's the thing. If you check out at any point along this process, then you're going to short-circuit God's desire for you when it comes to you messing up. And what I mean by that is that if you recognize your responsibility in the way you've treated someone poorly— or the resentment you hold towards somebody, or the bitterness you hold, or the action that you did where you wronged someone, if you recognize it, but you don't repent of it, it's still out there, and it's still an issue. Or if you recognize it, and you repent of it, and you don't do it again, but you don't reconcile with the person, then there's still a wall between you and that person, and you still haven't followed God's full plan of reconciliation towards that person. And then worst of all, if you've even reconciled with that person, but it still eats away at you day in and day out, and you're still thinking five years later about that thing that you did to someone five years ago, and you just can't get over it, that means it's destroying you on the inside. It means you're not resting in what God has given you in forgiveness and grace. And so every one of these steps is incredibly important when it comes to what you do when you mess up. 
And so this morning, we're going to be jumping in to repentance. Because here's the thing is, you can recognize something, and just because you recognize it doesn't mean that you repent of it. You can recognize you're wrong and that you did something incorrectly, or you treated someone poorly, or you sinned or made a mistake, but just because you acknowledge and confess, yes, I did that, doesn't mean you necessarily have repented of it. This is, so this morning was kind of an example, and it made me think of this point. Uh, some of my kids come early with me to church. I get here a little earlier than everyone else, and they always come not because they want to spend time with me. They come because they know there's hot chocolate at the church. And that's the reason they come. And so, so I make them work a little bit. I make them set up a few things over there before they get their hot chocolate. But as soon as they're done setting up, they're always hot chocolate, hot chocolate. <laughs> Even in the 100 degree weather in the summer, they're wanting hot chocolate. I don't know. So this morning, one of my, my youngest girl uh, got her hot chocolate and full cup of hot chocolate. And she sat down over there in the kiosk in the children's area. And I guess she had a coat on. It was getting hot. She started to take her coat off. And the coat hit the hot chocolate, and the entire the top fell off. The entire cup just whoosh, just soaked her and the floor in hot chocolate, um, and she was not happy about that. Um, but that's something that I've kind of learned. I'm pretty gracious in that situation, and the reason is because I was just like that when I was her age. So I spilt drinks all the time when I was younger. Um, I'm, I'm telling you, from, the, from when I was like five years old to probably like 13 or 14 years old, no lie, spilt, spilt, spilt all the time. And I can remember to this day, my parents just getting on to me all the time because I could not keep drinks in their cups. They went everywhere. Um, and I, I remember to this day, like it was yesterday, my dad had gotten a new car. Um, I'm going to blame him for this because he still let me bring a drink into his new car. But I remember like it was yesterday, he got this new car and he let us have a drink in there for some reason. And we got in the car. First thing he did was he turned around to me and said, Jeff, do not spill that drink. Okay, dad. Of course, within three minutes of leaving, the drink was all over the floor in his new car. He was not happy about that. But, but Molly Kate's uh, spill this morning reminded me of that because um, I knew I spilled drinks even before that. I knew I did it all the time. Almost every time I was in the car, if I had a drink, I was going to spill it. I recognized my responsibility in it, but I never took any steps to change it. I never took any steps to redirect my actions or my thought process or or whatever, so that I would stop doing it. And so I recognized it, but I never really repented of it. And honestly, if I, if I look back, my heart, I really didn't care if I spilled it. It happened, whatever. It wasn't my car. My parents never made me clean it up, which was another, I blame them for that as well. If they would have made me clean up, maybe that would have changed. Um, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a young, if you get like a, a speeding ticket or something like that, if your parents pay for it, then you're like, oh, not a big deal if I speed. And then you grow up and you get one and you have to pay $200. It's like, oh, now it really matters. It was kind of like that. But, but um, yeah, so I had recognized my part in it and I would confess, yep, I'm the one who spilt it, but nothing had changed in my heart or my mind or my actions so that I wouldn't do it anymore. 
And that's, that's kind of where we stand today from last week when, when we talked about, or Nick talked about confessing sin and showing how David was confronted by the prophet Nathan because of his sins, because of what he had done to Bathsheba's husband and, and her family and the way he had, he had wronged so many people. David confessed that sin and was convicted of it. And so the next step for David is what we're going to be talking about today, and it is repentance. So where we're going to be this morning is Psalm 51. If you're familiar with Psalm 51, you know exactly why we're there, because this is a psalm that most believe, traditions say, was written right after Nathan confronted David. David recognized his responsibility because of the sins that he had committed, and he confessed that, and this is his psalm that he wrote in repentance of what he had done. So we're going to be in Psalm 51. Before we get there, though, I just want to give a definition because one of the things I do like to do is, is there's a lot of words that we kind of throw around in church that uh, we assume that everyone knows what they mean. Um, but if you haven't been in church too long or you're fairly new to this, it might, you may be saying repentance. I don't really even understand what that means. And even if you've been in church a long time, you can throw that word out all the time, and, but never doesn't have any meat behind it. So I like to give, like, I like to break it down and give a simple, easy explanation of repentance. Um, like the Hebrew word means like to turn around, to turn and go a different direction. But when you look at all of scripture, I think this is a great definition is, is that repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change of direction. Let me say that one more time. Repentance is a change of heart and a change of mind that leads to a change in direction. And so when you look at the Hebrew word and the Greek word, and it's talking about turning around, going a different direction, in order for you to turn around and go a different direction, your, heart, your mind has to change, right? You have to decide, no, I don't wanna go this way anymore. I want to go that way. And your heart has to determine, all right, we're going to move everything and go back the other way. So repentance, a change in heart and a change in mind that leads to a change in direction. Now, when I look at scripture, there's two main types of repentance. We're going to focus in this morning on the second one, but I just want to mention the first one because I don't want you to get the idea that when you repent, that somehow it's it's saving you every time you repent or that every time you mess up, then you've got to repent again or you're no longer saved. That's not the way it works because what it says in scripture is that if you believe in Jesus and confess him as your Lord and Savior, his death has paid the price for your sins, past, present, and future. And so salvation is yours. And so that's the first type of repentance is a repentance that leads to salvation. We can read Romans 10, 9, and it says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So your first act of repentance is when you decide Jesus is Lord. Notice the change of heart and the change of mind in that scripture. If you declare with your mouth, that's your mind saying, yes, Jesus is Lord. He is who he said he was going to be. And then the change of heart and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So even when we come to faith in Jesus for the first time, repentance is that change of mind and that change of heart. I change what I believe about Jesus. I change what I understand about my sin. I now 
change my life to living for Christ and denying the sin in my life. And so that's a repentance that, that leads to salvation. But what we're talking about more importantly in this series is, is what to do when you mess up towards another person, when you wrong someone else, when, when you hold resentment toward someone else, bitterness towards someone else, your actions have hurt another person, what does God want you to do? And so that's the second type of repentance, the repentance that restores fellowship. And that's, that's the repentance that David is speaking of here in Psalm 51. <clears throat> so let's jump right in. We're going to start off Psalm 51 verses 1 through 9, and then we're going to look at the mind of David and how it changed. Because you think about it before, remember the sins of David. We don't need to go through all of those today, but remember, David saw Bathsheba and decided she, that he wanted her for his wife, and so he took her, and then he killed Bathsheba's husband, so that he could now have her as wife. He uh, deceived his entire army. He lied to all these people. His sins were pretty great towards other people. And so obviously in his mind, he had justified that all of these things I did to hurt others are okay because I want it. But once his mind changes, this is what happens. Let's listen. Verse one. <clears throat> Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. Now notice the mind right here in verse number three. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. So he recognizes in his mind, this is kind of similar to last week. He confessed, he realized, Nathan confronted him, you've sinned, and he says, I've sinned, I'm guilty, I'm in the wrong. Then look what he notices in verse four. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is huge. David recognized that even though his sin was against Bathsheba and Bathsheba's family, and his army that he deceived, and all the people that he had lied to and wronged, even though his sin was horizontal, the reality is that his sin was actually vertical against God. That, that his sin against others was the same as sinning against God himself. And so he says, against you and you only have I sinned. What that tells us is one of the things our mind has to change about it's when we wrong someone else, we're not just wronging them, we're wronging God. When we sin against someone else, when we harbor anger or bitterness or, or resentment or whatever it is towards someone else, we're not just doing something to them, we're doing something to God as well. And so sin is bigger than an interpersonal issue between you and another person. It's a spiritual issue between you and God. And then he continues on. End of verse four. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So he recognizes, God, you're justified in punishing me for my sin. I was wrong. I not only hurt people, but I hurt you, God. And you are right, God, in justifying, I mean, in punishing me. And then surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Verse seven, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. 
wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. And so in those last verses, he recognizes not only is God justified in punishing him, but God is also full of grace and mercy and is the only one who can restore him as well. And so that's the first step. The first step is is changing our mind about how we have hurt other people. I mentioned before that that in our sin, in our mess-ups, we have a tendency, not just teenagers, not just kids, adults as well, we have a, a tendency to marginalize our sin while we like explode other people's sin. Like other people's sins are a big deal. Why can't they just get it right? But then when you look at your own sin, you have a tendency to marginalize it. Oh, it's small. It's not a big deal. Compared to their sin, I mean, mine is small. We do that or we justify it. We say, well, that person wronged me, so I'm justified in wronging them. They hurt me big, so a little hurt towards them is justified. Or we sweep it under the rug, we hide it and pretend like, hey, nothing really bad happened anyway. It's not a big deal. Or I keep these thoughts in my head. As long as they're in my head, they're okay, as long as they don't come out of my mouth. That's not really the way it works. That's, that's the lie that Satan is, is trying to keep us in, in this idea of when we mess up, justifying it, marginalizing it, or hiding it. But the reality is, the truth of God's scripture is, is no, we must recognize that when we wrong someone else, it's as if we are wronging the Lord and Savior himself. And we must recognize that it doesn't matter how much someone else may have hurt us. If we hurt them back, we've both hurt each other and we're both in the wrong. It doesn't matter what that person has done to me. If I retaliate, then I am in the wrong. You can't justify that. And so, and so God wants us to recognize mentally to say, God, I'm in the wrong. Next step, watch what David goes from here in verse number 10. He moves from this change of heart, I mean, from mind to a change of heart. And he says this, verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He's speaking to the heart. He's he's realizing that it's not enough just to recognize it. It's not enough just to even admit that, yeah, I should do something different. A change of heart, this is another one, one of those words that we throw around a lot just in society, heart. What does heart mean? It can mean a lot of different things. In this instance, I like to think of it as, as your want to, you know? It's what makes you want to do things, right? And so if you've changed your mind recognizing it, you can change your mind and say, yeah, I've messed up. Yeah, that was wrong. But if your want to doesn't change, then you're not going to want to fix it. And so David is saying, not only has my mind changed, but created me a pure want to. Created me the want to fix the things I've done wrong. Created me, God, the want to right the wrongs I've done towards other people. Created me the right the, 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 the want to, to fix my mindset against the people that I resent or I hold bitterness 
towards. And he doesn't say just do it once. He says in verse 12, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So it's not just a, a want to for the moment. It's a want to that perseveres day in and day out. Because I think if we all are honest, our sinful natures and our selfish tendencies want us to revert back to holding that bitterness, to holding that resentment, to continuing in those actions. Our, our selfish nature wants us to not forgive, wants us to retaliate. And David is praying that God would give him that want to, to make things right, to treat people well, to not mess up over and over again, day in and day out. And so the lie here that Satan tries to push into our minds is that I've, I've admitted it, so it's good. I've admitted it, so it's over with. And God says, no, that's just the first step. You recognize the responsibility. You change your mind about what is going on in this and recognizing sin in your life for what it is. But the next step is your want to. Changing your heart and wanting to right the wrongs that you have been a part of. And here's the last thing that happens. Verse 13. David says, then... I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. So deliver me from my sin, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. And I'm gonna stop there because that speaks to action, doesn't it? David says, when I recognize my responsibility, when I repent of the wrongs I've done towards other people, and God, you forgive me and you set me on a new path, he says, then I will praise you. And then I will teach others about you. And then my lips will be opened up in praise. And so that's the action that happens because David's mind has changed about his sin and his heart has changed about his sin as well. And Bart's going to come in next week and, and talk a lot more about that action because that action, when it's against another person, is reconciliation. But this morning, the challenge I think is as we close out is, is to ask the question what are the areas of my life? What are, what are the, the, the parts in my mind and in my heart that I have not admitted the fact that I'm holding resentment towards someone? or I'm holding bitterness towards some. What are those, what are those interpersonal sins, mess-ups that I am a part of that I have justified as if they're okay because someone has wronged me or because they're not that big of a deal or I've marginalized them to make it seem not that it's really small when it's a bigger deal than I want to admit or what are the things that I've slipped under the rug and hidden, act like aren't there that are just kind of coming alongside me. If you were here last week, Nick shared Psalm 32 and it was very clear in Psalm 32, David says that when I held my sin inside of me, it wasted my body away. My bones were groaning and my energy was sapped. So we can't be deceived to thinking that we can keep our sins inside of us and continue to live day in and day out like normal and things will be okay. God says, but when we mess up, we right the wrong. We recognize the responsibility we have in it. We repent of it and change our mind and change our heart. And that will lead us into action where we reconcile with other people. 
I mean, it's the story of the gospel. It's what Jesus did for us. He was wronged. He was beaten. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was persecuted. He was left for dead and murdered. But he reconciled. He offered repentance. He offered grace and he offered forgiveness. And then he called us to do the same thing. When someone wrongs us, we respond with grace and forgiveness. When somebody does something that we don't like, we don't harbor resentment in our minds. We don't harbor bitterness toward them. We forgive just like God in Christ forgave us. And we respond with love in each and every situation. So what to do when we mess up? We follow the way of the cross. We follow the way of Jesus. We do the opposite of what the rest of this world does by offering love, grace, and forgiveness. And when we do wrong, we are quick to acknowledge it and quick to repent of it. Let's pray.